Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to another glorious Tuesday. It is absolutely beautiful outside. It's maybe like in the low 80s, maybe 85, with not that much humidity. And for it being the end of July, I hope it continues this way because this weather is fantastic. Tell me what it's like in your area. Do you have rain all the time? Is it super hot and muggy? Or is it just like really nice and beautiful and breezy and lovely and you could just spend all day every day outside? Tonight, we are on a mini episode, so we're going to go ahead and get started. We are talking about the Thanksgiving Day Killer. What do you think of when you think of Thanksgiving? According to History.com, Thanksgiving occurs on the fourth Thursday in November and is based on the Colonial Pilgrim's 1621 Harvest Meal. Britannica.com says, Thanksgiving is an annual national holiday in the United States and Canada, celebrating the harvest and other blessings of the past year. Americans generally believe that their Thanksgiving is modeled on a 1621 harvest feast shared by the English colonists of Plymouth and the Wampanoag people. The American holiday is particularly rich in legend and symbolism. The traditional fare of the Thanksgiving meal typically includes turkey, bread stuffing, potatoes, cranberries, and pumpkin pie. When some people describe Thanksgiving, they talk about all the food that is prepared, the multiple tables that are patched together so that everyone can sit with each other, the big game that is on in the living room, or the dog show, the laughter, the stories, and the bonding that happens when the dishes are cleaned up. The one thing that doesn't normally happen is murdering your family members. Well, in 2009, Paul Michael Marriage decided that's how he would spend Thanksgiving with his family, by murdering them. Let's talk about it. November 26, 2009 started out as a normal Thanksgiving day in Jupiter, Florida. Tim Sitton and his wife Muriel opened their home for the family gathering that year. Everyone that was in attendance were on good speaking terms with each other and everything was great. That was until Paul's father told everyone that he was on his way over and needed directions. Jim wasn't aware that he was invited because not everyone was on speaking terms with him. Paul was always on the outs with family life and would rarely attend gatherings. Jim had only met him twice and hadn't actually seen him face-to-face -face in more than a decade. So, of course... He found it a little strange when he was told that he was on his way over. When Paul got there, everything seemed to be okay. 
Jim and Muriel's daughter, Michaela, wrote on cards about how thankful she was for her family and strung them together on a clothesline. They all then ate dinner and participated in sing-alongs around the piano. Michaela sang songs as part of a makeshift dress rehearsal for the performance of the Nutcracker she was going to be in the very next day. There were no arguments or red flags, so no one suspected anything was going to happen. That was until Paul walked outside to his car and then returned with a gun. Jim states in an article on dailymail.co.uk that it felt like he methodically picked out his victims. He shot and killed his twin sisters, Carla Marriage and Lisa Knight. Carla was a real estate agent and Lisa was pregnant at the time. Paul then shot his aunt, Raymond Joseph, and killed her. He then shot his brother-in-law, Patrick Knight, and wounded him. Another family member, Clifford Gabara, was grazed by a bullet. Paul then walked into six-year-old Michaela's room where she was hiding, shot, and killed her. Jim believes that Paul didn't plan on killing her, but might have become jealous when he saw the family fawning over her while she was singing. Many of the family members that were in attendance that day can recall Paul shouting, I waited 20 years to do this. Paul then left Jim and Muriel's residence and disappeared. For five weeks, Paul was on the run until he was finally arrested on January 2, 2010, at the Edgewater Lodge in Long Key, Florida. When authorities raided his room, they found that he had been following his own manhunt online. He was taken to the Palm Beach County Jail. In an article on palmbeachpost.com, his mother states that when he was 19, he had a nervous breakdown and suffered severe depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Paul's former football coach is quoted in that same article saying, I thought he'd be running a company or a business or something like that. It seemed like he just had everything going for him while other people were still kind of fiddling around. Dr. Stephen Alexander states that the movement from breakdown to violence is often gradual. That if Paul did in fact suffer from OCD, it would have given him an excuse to revisit the feelings of rage and resentment, turning them over in his mind. Over time, the bitterness and unhappiness and bad feelings would crystallize. The idea of killing would become more concrete and Paul would analyze where and how he could do it. So Paul might not have gone to dinner that night knowing he was going to kill. Prosecutors decided that they wanted to seek the death penalty. This decision came after a grand jury formally indicted Paul on four counts of first-degree murder and three counts of attempted first-degree murder. The grand jury recommended the death penalty. Paul's trial date was set for August 8, 2011. He instead avoided the death penalty after he agreed to plead guilty in exchange for seven consecutive life sentences. Jim Sitton, 
begged Judge Joseph Marks to not accept the plea deal. Muriel Sitton addressed the courtroom and stated how she would never forget seeing her daughter's body on the stretcher, knowing that she would never hear her voice again. Judge Marks stated that the life sentences were the strongest he could impose after the death penalty was taken off the table. Once outside the courtroom, Jim addressed the media and stated this, If the death penalty isn't for this guy, then who's it for? Muriel is quoted saying, This killer you see in the courtroom today is not the man that was in our home that night. He was a cold-blooded killer without remorse, without mercy, who just gunned down our family members and could have killed more of us if we had not escaped out of the house. State attorney Michael McOloff told the media that the decision to accept the plea deal was difficult as he considered the victims who wanted a resolution so they could rebuild their lives. He is quoted in an article on dailymail.co.uk saying, I've taken all these deeply held beliefs and sometimes conflicting wishes and sentiment into account in agreeing to this resolution. Jim and Muriel Sitton then filed a negligence lawsuit in September of 2011 against Paul's parents, stating that they knew their son was planning on attending the event uninvited and unannounced, and they had to have some sense that he might kill people that day and chose not to tell anyone. They also believed that they had an opportunity to stop him, but chose not to. The lawsuit requested damages of more than $15,000. The lawsuit was thrown out twice by Palm Beach County Circuit Judge Manua Sasser. She states that the Sittens could not factually allege the existence of a legal duty under the Florida law as it currently exists. His parents could not control the premises or firearms or had no legal right or ability to control the actions of their son. Ten years after the tragedy, the family speaks to the media regarding their life now. In an article on WPTV.com, Muriel is quoted saying, Michaela would have been 16 going on 17. I can't believe it's been 10 years. Sometimes it feels like yesterday, and other times it feels like it's been one long marathon. Jim is quoted saying, After the murders, all the joy and laughter and the little girl giggles left us a cold and empty house. In 2012, Jim and Muriel welcomed a little girl into this world. Two years after that, they welcomed another little girl, and they feel as though their family is now complete. The big question is, did Jim and Muriel ever move out of their house after their family was murdered? And the answer is no. They believe that one awful night can't erase the years of happiness they spent in their home. For now, they are sheltering their girls about the details of the murder of their sister, grandmother, and other family members. They believe that when the time comes, God will give them the right words and wisdom to share. And with that being said, 
That is the end of the story of the Thanksgiving Day Killer. I hope you enjoyed this mini-episode. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.